One of the most misunderstood symptoms of childhood PTSD, and I see this in almost everyone who was abused and neglected, and I, I've seen it in myself, especially before I recovered, and it's that we seem to gravitate toward people who don't have their lives together. And, and we have the capacity to do this even when we do have our lives together, except for that one thing, that we're attracted to people who drag us down. The people with whom you associate is a huge factor in how you turn out in life. So why would anyone do this? I wanted to share with you a comment that came in last week from someone named John. And I just was like, that, John really nailed it on this and I wanted to say more about it. So what he wrote was, breakthrough this morning. When you're a kid in a toxic family, they steer you away from making good connections with decent people. They don't want accountability. As a kid, you have magical thinking where you think your pain is visible. You want to be saved, but you're told that decent people are not to be associated with for fear their shitty parenting will be noticed, that your own parents' shitty parenting will be noticed. You carry this into adulthood by not making connection with assertive people of high morals. And then he said, I hope this message helps someone else. It helped me, John. Hey, I wanted to expand on this. This is one of the great mysteries for me is like, why do we do that? I have a long history of, especially in romantic relationships, being drawn towards destructive types or, you know, totally unavailable or self-destructive, either way, bringing my life down a lot. And people would just be like, why don't you just choose nice people? And the secret truth was, I'm not attracted to them. They seem dumb to me, or they seem two-dimensional rather than three-dimensional to me, and I don't relate. So I, I've thought it was that. I was told sometimes by therapists, um, you just want to recreate your childhood, like, you know, or, or by new age people who are like, um, it's your karma, you're just going to keep recreating the pain from the past until you work it out, and so the people who hurt you are your teacher. And none of that ever sat right with me. None of it ever sat right. What John said sits right. I think that is what it is. Um, my parents had serious problems, with, especially around alcoholism and everything that goes with that, and they weren't very present. <laughs> and the problems at home were quite visible to anybody who visited. And so I, when John wrote this, I was just thinking back. Um, the first time I ever had a boyfriend, the, our first date was the eighth grade prom. And leading up to that prom, for the months preceding that, first there was all the anxiety with my friends. Will anybody ask us to go? I was, I was 13, and the prom, when the prom happened, I had just turned 14. Would we get asked, and you know, what will we wear? So my family was really poor. What I would wear was a big worry. And I remember, so the prom was in May, I think, and in February that year, I was visiting my dad, and he, he died, actually, the next year. And so he was sick. He had Lou Gehrig's disease. But I was visiting him, and he was still like able to walk and talk a little bit. And I told him about my worries about the prom dress, and he was like, I'm going to get you a prom dress. And my dad didn't have money either. He had, you know, the problems that my parents had were just devastating to their lives. And even though he was very talented and educated and had once done well, um, he lived in a garage. And 
we could, when we came to town to visit him, we couldn't stay with him and had to stay with relatives. But I loved him and he loved me and all of the problems that he had are one thing, but his love for me is definitely an asset that I have. He just loved me unconditionally, thought the world of me. So he took me to the mall and um, I bought a prom dress that was a very beautiful, cool, tiered chiffon um, zigzag pattern in maroon and light blue and dark blue and it was kind of a disco dress right and I thought it was great I loved how it looked and and it had these little spaghetti straps and there's a picture um, there's a picture of me sitting on the sofa at his girlfriend's house wearing this dress and looking very very good and shy and I, I was still a little bit innocent back then I remember the dress was $45, and that was so much back then, especially for him. I think he lived on unemployment, and in, yeah, that was, that was a lot of money back then. So it was this really special thing, and he also paid for me to buy these wedgie high heels. So I was, since I was um, not quite 14, to have high heels, pantyhose, the disco dress, the whole thing. I think I had on some blue eyeshadow, you know, I just, this was like a really big deal for me. The Captain and Tennille hair, and... <laughs> When I got back to Arizona, where I lived and where my friends were, they were like, nobody was going to wear stuff like that. They were going to wear these little um, kind of uh, Holly Hubby, Laura Ingalls dresses. I was a Laura Ingalls fanatic as a kid, and uh, I didn't know these things were available. Well, that ended up being another $60 for a dress like that. And I had this little white ruffled thing, and it was, it was very pretty. Had the shoes already but I had to buy a second dress and I babysat and got the money to buy this dress. It was such a big deal. Well, it was a week before the prom and nobody had asked me and I'm not totally sure why I would have been like not asked by anybody, but I wasn't, you know, I, I, I was, I don't know, okay enough, pretty enough, but I wasn't asked by anybody and it was a week away and I was desperate and it was, you know, at that time and place, it was all up to the guys to do the asking. In my English class, I had had a little bit of talent for writing and mid-semester, mid I was transferred into a journalism class that was really wonderful and exciting for me. A lot of people were good writers there and it was stimulating and I was writing a cartoon and I, I put out like a weekly cartoon it was called Dr. Lightning, <laughs> Dr. Lightning. And it, I, I loved being funny. I was really into comedy. My big dream in life was to be a comedian. And I ended up being a comedian in earlier part of my career. And now this is really, like <laughs> doesn't feel like comedy, but it comes in handy, <laughs> being the crappy childhood fairy. And I wrote this cartoon and through that class, I met somebody else who loved comedy, who was clever like that and um, liked my cartoon. And I wanted him to ask me to this eighth grade prom. So I did what 13 year old girls do. And I had, I guess by then I was just 14 and I had her go to him on my behalf and say, do you like Anna? Yes or no. And I think she actually did it with a note with boxes and everything and he could check the box. And he sent it back, yes. So she talked to him in person and said, will you ask her? She wants you to ask her. <laughs> and. <laughs> And um, he said he couldn't because he was really poor and his mom, who was single, a single mom, couldn't afford to get him anything to wear. So I sent her back, my emissary, and said, go tell him, that's fine, I don't care what he wears, I would just like him to ask me. 
So it was Friday, the week before the Friday that was the actual thing. And, and uh, I was going to my locker, the bell rang, it was time to go home and I was devastated, like it wasn't gonna happen. She had already told him he had had several days to process this. And then he was walking ahead of me and then all of a sudden he spun on his heel and then he came back and he goes, do you wanna go to that thing with me? And I said, uh, okay. And then it was like, oh my God, oh my God. So I had, I had now sunk all this money into the dress and the horrible thing about having my first date was that his mother was gonna drive him to my house and he was gonna have to come to the door and possibly his mother and we were gonna have to ride in the car with his mother but they were gonna see where I lived and possibly come inside. And I became completely anxiously consumed with how I could possibly still have the date without letting them come to my house or see what's inside. And I had this great friend named Debbie and we're still friends. And she, she came from a household that was somewhat similar. <laughs> and she helped me like strategize. How are we gonna make it really fast? If they come in, have them come really fast, have them get out. But I was so scared, not of the date, but of getting found out about the, about the conditions of my homes. So here's what my house was like when I was growing up. It was piled high with junk. There was rotten food all over the counter. You couldn't eat anything. Um, it was, there, there was little or no cleaning that ever happened and things weren't put away. There was a giant hole knocked through the wall of the living room into the garage that at one point in the history of the family was going to be a doorway, but had never been finished. It was just raw bricks and the smell of garbage and dirty walls. And what I was most afraid of is that my mother would make an appearance and she would show up really drunk. I was almost willing to give up my date to get out of this. So I, I worked it out. I waited by the door. I saw them pull up in the car. I ran out the door. I said, bye. And I just like said, here, let me in. Let me get in the car. And I got in the car and nobody ever came in. Whew, I was able to hide my whole history, my whole life. Then we got there and there was this whole little march that you did, you know, marching together. What was it called? The Grand March or something at the beginning into the cafeteria, you know, where we had the dance. And there was the theme song that we danced to, which was Reasons by Earth, Wind and Fire, <laughs> which I had practiced with Debbie a hundred times, how to slow dance, how are we gonna do this? You know, all of this was new to us. And my date said, I have a friend who's a grown up who lives a couple blocks from here and he has pot, weed. Um, do you wanna go get high? And I was like, um, yeah, of course. And I didn't, I wanted to be at the dance. Gosh, I'd put so much into this for months. And that's what happened. We went to some guy's apartment and smoked pot. And um, I hadn't done that before and it was weird and it was uncomfortable. And I was, um, luckily it didn't do very much to me. Um, and then he gave us all beers and this other couple went with us. And it was just this like devastating disappointment. Now, unfortunately, the story goes on that several months later, like I did, he did become my first boyfriend and then he broke up with me and it was uh, just like one of the most heartbreaking things in my life. I tried to hold on to that relationship despite all the crap and the crap fitting of the whole thing of me being a girl who was so excited and into this and just settling for going to some guy with a mustache and some crappy apartment, you know who was, I mean, he had to be in his 20s. What were, the, what were we even doing there? 
And that's where I got that aversion. That's where I got that aversion to decent guys. Thanks to Facebook, I know I'm friends with men and women who I went to school with, junior high, high school. And what's interesting is they're really cool. I like them. And I feel much more comfortable with a variety of people um, now that I, a lot of my trauma is healed and that identity as like the poor girl, the girl who is not wanted or asked anywhere, um, who doesn't, you know, who takes the crappy jobs, who doesn't deserve to have what she wants, who suffers all the time and gets ulcers and smokes cigarettes trying to deal with the pain. That identity has melted away now and I feel more comfortable with people. But here's the truth, John. I still feel most comfortable with people like you. <laughs> I feel most comfortable with people who know what CPTSD is people who understand the oddball suffering that we have that's not really like what anybody expects who doesn't have what we have, people who have tender hearts when I describe what my past was like and who get it themselves, because I understand you. It means the world to me that we have a tribe together where I belong, and I, I feel safe here, and I hope you can too. What I hear over and over again from the people who come and watch my videos is, wow, I just came to this channel and it's the first time anybody's described what it's like to be me. Ah, it, me too, me too. You know, when I started putting videos out there, I didn't expect anything like this. But we are a tribe and we do understand each other. And some of us have gone on to great things and also struggle on, struggle on the side with CPTSD symptoms and we're all together working it out. You don't have to date people who are not good to you. You don't have to work for people who exploit you. You don't have to stay stuck in the outward signs of trauma if you can begin to change and heal that identity inside that that's all you are. That's what I think. We're seeking the people where we don't feel judged and we feel safe. And that can be really hard with people who are just, just have it all together. You know, they just are put together every day. They move forward. They always have the right thing to say. Everybody likes them. You know, that brings up a lot of pain for me, but that's where the daily practice comes in, is I'm resentful at the people who look so nice and have it all together. In my work life, I've met some amazing people, some like people who have accomplished great things in business and um, spirituality and recovery and so many parts of life. When you're loved by people who relate to you, you have a lot more capacity to be friends with the people who don't relate to that part of you. And it's really good to be able to do that because that's where you know the world operates. It's full of all kinds of people and it's a good way to be, to be open-hearted and open-minded about them, but to know who you are. So what is it that makes those people who have it together feel uncomfortable for us? And here's, here's what's become clear to me. It's shame. It's shame. I had shame about the house I grew up in. Uh, I continued to have shame about the ways that my life was dysfunctional, the ways that I could kind of keep it looking like everything's together on the outside. But if you got to know me or saw what was actually going on, you'd know that I was really dysfunctional in certain ways. And that shame made it simply unsafe for me to get to know people who would recognize that I was screwing up. I did not want to be seen for that. And that's why I have such tremendous respect for the people who write letters, like they're willing to be seen. There's a little anonymity there. But let me tell you, when they write letters and they write in and people get in there, like never make shaming comments to people who write in, only support those people. It benefits all of us to have a place where we can support each other including the mistakes we make, including the things that should be obvious, but they're not obvious when you have PTSD. That's why we have each other.
So we get shame because Yes, we get shamed for things that weren't our fault, stuff that, you know, the condition of the house we grew up in or behavior of the parents who raised us, perhaps, things like that. But we also get ashamed of the stuff that we start to do. It's the stuff that we do that is where that, what I call earned shame, there's like shame that just glues onto you. And then there's this little bit of shame that's because you don't feel good about something that you did, right? And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not telling you what you should feel ashamed about, but just that when I didn't treat myself with respect or when I hurt other people, I don't feel good about that. And so there's a feeling of shame so long as I'm holding it in and I'm not working it out. And when you don't have healing for your CPTSD, how are you going to work out shame? You need to be able to self-regulate. You need to have love no matter where you are on that journey of working it out, support. And you need to have people who get it. So I hope you find that here in this YouTube community. You can definitely find it in my Facebook community for members. Come be a member. There's always a link to that down below in the description section and courses. But support from people who get it is essential to start breaking the cycle of shame. I'm the only one who's like this. I don't know why I'm such an idiot. That's what I used to think. When you begin to solve those life problems that make you ashamed, then your head comes up and then there's room to start making different movements, different choices. I hate that word choices. It's so judgy, you know, that's not a very good choice. <laughs> You just kind of move about your life because we're all guessing, we're all improvising, like, I don't know, what should I do next? But it starts to get easier and wiser as you get freer of the fear and resentment that holds you down, that is the sort of chatter of complex PTSD. That's what the daily practice technique I teach is designed to bring down so you have space for your better angels, for your smarter, wiser wisdom to come in and guide you towards a next step that makes good sense for you. And then, there's, and then the shame is healed. That's how it works. Less shame, more confidence, and you still get to have your deepest affinity with the people who get it about you. So I think that's pretty cool. I really love you guys for being here. I love you for having what you have and for expressing what it's like and for cr creating this community where people come and they just can't even believe that everybody understands what's going on and what they're describing so closely matches what they've been going through. It's a good thing. We are pioneers. We are a movement, so I'm really glad you're here. Thank you so much for listening. If you love my content, think about joining my membership program. You can find out more information about that and all my courses and coaching programs at crappychildhoodfairy.com. Remember, healing is possible. People with childhood PTSD can have a wonderful life. Sometimes we just need a few workarounds. I'll see you next time.